This week's special guest on the Foreign Desk is Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary-General of NATO. The interview was recorded last Friday, October 14th. Jens Stoltenberg was supposed to have concluded his second four-year term as Secretary-General earlier this month. The former Norwegian Prime Minister was anticipating a rather quieter new role as Governor of his country's central bank. However, at an extraordinary NATO summit held in Brussels in March, shortly after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine commenced, US President Joe Biden personally proposed that Stoltenberg's tenure be extended until this time next year. NATO's 73-year history has not been without challenges, but it has never been tested quite so stringently as this. Since February, NATO's member states have tried to maintain a delicate balance between supporting Ukraine without being seen to be a direct participant in its fight for survival. As if that wasn't enough to be dealing with, July's NATO summit in Madrid, which the Foreign Desk attended, also saw the publication of a strategic concept which, for the first time, explicitly addressed the challenge posed by China. Clearly, there is a lot to discuss, not least the anticipated accession to the alliance of two new members, Sweden and Finland, who would not have imagined taking such a step as recently as eight months ago. How has Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed NATO? Had NATO vastly overestimated Russia, at least in terms of its conventional military? And what limits are there to any future NATO enlargement? This is the Foreign Desk. In our own time, we've seen brave men overcome obstacles that seemed insurmountable and forces that seemed overwhelming. Men with courage and vision can still determine their own destiny. They can choose slavery or freedom, war or peace. I have no doubt which they will choose. The treaty we are signing here today is evidence of the path they will follow. If there is anything certain today, it is the will of the people of the world for freedom and for peace. When President Putin went to war in February, he actually had some demands on Ukraine, but he also actually suggested NATO to sign what he called legally binding security treaties, where NATO should guarantee no further enlargement, no new members of NATO. So he wanted less NATO. He wanted us to partly have no new members and partly NATO to withdraw all its troops and forces from the eastern part of the alliance. He's getting exactly the opposite. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Just over a week ago, I spoke to NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg. I began by asking him about his recent meetings with NATO's defence ministers and if he'd noticed the mood shifting since February. Also, fundamentally, I'm noticing the same mood, the enormous will to support Ukraine and to stand by Ukraine and to provide support. That was the message in February when Russia invaded, and that's still the message. And in many ways, that's the good news, because I think some were afraid of some kind of fatigue, some kind of reduced willingness from NATO allies, from partners to provide support as the war dragged on. But the reality is that, if anything, it's even stronger now because they have seen the brutality, they have seen the killing of civilians, they have seen all the airstrikes. And of course, also NATO allies have been encouraged by the progress the Ukrainian forces have been able to make. So all of that actually 
is the reason why NATO allies are, if anything, even more motivated to support Ukraine now than they were in February. We're nearly eight months into this conflict now, of course. Is there any part of you that still feels somewhat surprised that Russia actually did this? Because I can remember going back to February, we were speaking to ambassadors, defence ministers, prime ministers, almost up until the moment of the invasion on February 24th, and there was still an amount of disbelief that this was actually going to happen. Did you have a personal moment of realisation where you thought, they're actually going to do this. Of course, until they invaded, we all hoped and worked hard for them to not invade. And there were a lot of diplomatic efforts by NATO and NATO allies. We had meetings here in the NATO headquarters in the in what we call the NATO-Russia Council, a mechanism or a council we have established to talk to Russia. And of course, we really made big efforts to convince Russia not to invade. At the same time, we were not surprised because we had very detailed intelligence. We had precise information about the attack, the types of forces. And we also saw some critical neighbors, not only the armored vehicles and the soldiers and the artillery, but also field hospitals and actually blood, which is uh, very strong indications that an attack is imminent. Then there were actually very little doubt that they were going to attack. So when the attack happened on the 24th of February, we knew it was going to come. And actually, we shared intelligence with the rest of the world back in November 2021, also several months ahead. But of course, until the planes were flying and the battle tanks were rolling and the soldiers were marching, it was possible for President Putin to cancel the attack, to change his plans. But it was clear for a long time that he was going to attack. And uh, regrettably, that was exactly what happened. Well, in those eight months since, have you been personally surprised by how this conflict has unfolded? The question I'm specifically asking is, has NATO spent the last few decades vastly overestimating Russia as a conventional military? Well, the first, we have been preparing for this for eight years, since 2014, because after 2014, we have implemented the biggest reinforcement of our collective defense because of Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea. And the war didn't start in February this year. It started in the spring of 2014 when they took control over parts of Donbass and also illegally annexed Crimea. Then, of course, We've seen a weaker Russian military strength in Ukraine that many people expected. At the same time, I think we should be careful underestimating Russia. They still have a lot of military capacity. They have started to mobilize. And of course, it is just a big country in territory and a big country when it comes to population. And President Putin and the leadership in Moscow is willing to actually accept a lot of suffering and pay a high price for conducting a war against a neighbor. So um, President Putin made a big mistake underestimating the strength of the Ukrainian forces. We should not make a similar mistake and underestimate the potential and enduring strength of the Russian armed forces. That's exactly why it is so important that we provide support to Ukraine and that we are prepared for long haul and that we actually step up also with more advanced systems. I just want to go back to one of your previous answers. You were talking about the mechanism that used to exist at some level, for NATO and Russia to have some sort of contact, some sort of discussion. Does anything like that still exist now? Is there any contact at all between NATO and the Russian military or the Russian government, either at a formal or informal level? 
As we don't have the mechanisms we used to have as a NATO Russia Council and so on, of course we don't meet in that way, we don't have the same kind of political dialogue because Russia walked away from all those diplomatic efforts. Then of course we and our military commanders and also military commanders of key NATO allies know how to reach out to the commanders in Russia to help prevent incidents, miscalculations incidents. And you have also seen publicly there have been some phone calls from different NATO allies with the Russian leadership. But that doesn't change the main message and the main thing. And that is that what we witness now is a war of aggression. Russia has grabbed or is trying to grab a part of the territory of another country, Ukraine. And of course, as long as they continue with this aggressive war of aggression, then what we need to do is to support Ukraine militarily. Because most wars ends at some stage at the negotiating table. But we know that the strength, what you can achieve around the negotiating table is absolutely linked to the strength on the battlefield. And we need to enable the Ukrainians to regain more territory, to liberate more territory, to stop all the Russian attempts to launch new attacks, because that will put them in the best possible position in eventual negotiations. And we need to enable them to prevail as a sovereign independent nation in Europe. That's our responsibility, and that's exactly what we are doing. For all that resolve and assistance, though, you recently re-emphasised, as you put it, that NATO is not a party to the conflict. And it wasn't just NATO defence ministers that have been in Brussels recently. So was Ukraine's Minister of Defence, Alexei Reznikov. When you say NATO is not a party to the conflict, Has that not by now become a bit of a distinction without a difference? I mean, Ukraine would not be resisting Russia as capably as it has without NATO being at barely one remove a party to this conflict. So NATO is not party to the conflict because we don't have NATO troops. We know that NATO forces in Ukraine. We don't have NATO planes in the airspace of Ukraine and NATO capabilities are not as a part of the war. And this is something which is important because the war that is ongoing in Ukraine is horrific. It's causing a lot of damage and suffering. But the full-fledged war in Europe between Russia and NATO will, of course, cause even more suffering and therefore NATO needs to prevent escalation. What NATO does is that we provide support to Ukraine, but that doesn't make us a party to the conflict. Ukraine has the right to self-defense that's enshrined in the UN Charter that the country which is attacked, of course, has the right to self-defense, and we have the right to help and support them, and that's exactly what we do. This is a war of choice by President Putin. He decided to invade a neighbor, and he can end the war tomorrow by withdrawing his forces. And we have to realize that if President Putin and Russia stops fighting, then there will be peace. If President Zelensky and Ukraine stops fighting, then Ukraine will cease to exist as an independent sovereign nation in Europe. And that will be, of course, extremely bad for the Ukrainians. They want to live in a democratic, free society, not be part of a totalitarian Russian society where journalists are arrested, where opposition politicians are assassinated. But it will also be dangerous for us because that will send a message to the whole world that when authoritarian powers like Moscow use military force, they achieve their goals. So we need to support Ukraine. That's the main message from the NATO meetings this week and also from me and from all NATO allies ever since the invasion. 
is that imperative against sending any NATO personnel, material into Ukraine absolutely set in stone? Has there been any thought, especially given what we've learned about the apparent weakness and ineptitude of Russia's conventional military, of cutting out a certain amount of middlemen, if you like, and perhaps airlifting equipment directly into Ukraine? We are sending a lot of material supplies from NATO allies and NATO to Ukraine. Everything from advanced air defense systems, armored vehicles, anti-tank weapons, and also non-lethal support. Fuel, uh, now we are very focused on winter equipment. The winter is coming. Diesel generators to help the Ukrainian forces operate throughout the winter. And just the last few days, the allies have also delivered and announced more support with different types of air defense systems, which is urgently needed in Ukraine. And NATO will shortly deliver hundreds of systems to make drones not functioning or to protect against the drones, both the Russian-made and the Iranian-made drones, jammers. And so there are many NATO allies and NATO types of support to Ukraine, but we don't have NATO forces on the ground and we don't have NATO planes participating in the military operations because for us it is important to distinguish between supporting Ukraine in the right to first self-defense and NATO not being direct party to the conflict. You've been fairly clear, and indeed the entire Western alliance has been fairly clear on how they want this war to end, which is obviously with Russian forces withdrawing from Ukraine completely. But how do you see that working out practically? These conversations must have been had because it is possible, isn't it, that a defeated Russia might be an even bigger security challenge than the belligerent Russia we are currently dealing with? As we don't face risk-free options, there are risks connected to any decision that we will take connected to the war in Ukraine because we face a dangerous and aggressive policy by President Putin and the Russian armed forces. So we need to compare risks. No one can predict how this war will end and of course there are risks. But on the other hand, if we decide not to support Ukraine, and let President Putin and the Russian armed forces win, it will be a tragedy for more than 40 million Ukrainians for a sovereign independent nation that is striving for freedom and democracy and actually proven to be a democratic society, changing government after elections and, and have implemented many important reforms supported also by NATO allies over the last years. But it will also be dangerous for us. It will make us more vulnerable. So we don't have the luxury of choosing between risk-free options, but I'm absolutely certain that the risks we face and the threats we face will be much higher if we abandon Ukraine and let President Putin win. And that's the reason why we just have to continue to support. And the more support we're able to provide, the sooner this war can end and the more likely it is that we will have a solution which ensures that Ukraine prevails as a sovereign, independent, democratic nation in Europe. We'll have more from Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary-General of NATO, in just a moment. 2022 has been arguably the most momentous year in NATO's history, but certainly not the first momentous year in NATO's history. Here's a brief recap of the Alliance's first 73 years. The North Atlantic Treaty was signed on April 4th, 1949. 
The fledgling North Atlantic Treaty Organization consisted of 12 countries, the United States, Canada, and, very broadly speaking, the European democracies left standing after World War II. For us, war is not inevitable. We do not believe that there are blind tides of history which sweep men one way or another. The big idea, then as it turns out now, was to establish some sort of bulwark against Russia, then trading as the Soviet Union. The subsidiary ambitions of NATO included the encouragement of European political cooperation and the establishment of American military presence on the continent. This, it was hoped, would combine to mitigate against any repeat of the calamity that Europe had just put itself and the world through. The treaty members realized that real peace is more than an absence of war, and they seek to promote political and economic stability in the North Atlantic area. To ensure this, they are sworn to stand together against aggression. An attack against one would be an attack against all. NATO's first military chief, or Supreme Allied Commander Europe, was the American General Dwight Eisenhower, architect of D-Day, later President of the United States. NATO's first Secretary General was Hastings Ismay, a former British general who had served as a key advisor to the UK's wartime Prime Minister Winston Churchill. It is Ismay who is widely credited, or blamed, for the glib summary of NATO's early mission as being to keep the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. One word more. Our way is the way of security and of peace. That is our goal. This would change, up to a point, in 1955, when the then West Germany joined NATO. We rejoice that the defense of freedom is thus enlarged and strengthened. Three years previously, Greece and Turkey had been the alliance's first enlargement. Thus the Cold War lines were drawn, give or take a few internal hiccups. France flounced from NATO's military command structure in 1966 and did not return until 2009. Greece did likewise in 1974 after the invasion of Cyprus by its fellow NATO member Turkey. Before the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, only one further new member joined, Spain, which by 1982, seven years on from the death of Franco, was reckoned to have laid down sufficiently solid democratic foundations. The decision by Europe's youngest democracy freely to associate her destiny with the collective security and welfare of the West stands as dramatic and irrefutable testimony to the continued vitality of NATO and to its continued relevance as the necessary guarantee of our liberty and fundamental values. In the years following the Soviet Union's collapse, NATO grew not only in size, but in role. In the 1990s, NATO forces were deployed beyond the alliance's borders in the conflicts consuming Bosnia, then Kosovo. A NATO-led peace support operation, K4, continues in Kosovo to this day. In 2001, the North Atlantic Treaty's famous Article 5, the all-for-one, one-for-all clause, was invoked for the first time following al-Qaeda's attacks on the United States. The NATO allies have agreed today 
at the request of the United States to take eight measures individually and collectively to expand the options available in the campaign against terrorism. NATO forces dominated the subsequent invasion of Afghanistan and from 2003 NATO oversaw the foreign military presence in the country. In 2011, NATO led the airborne military effort over Libya to implement UN Security Council Resolution 1973, intended to protect civilians from the vengeance of tottering dictator Muammar Gaddafi. Since 1999, NATO's membership has been swelled by almost all the Eastern European countries once held captive by Moscow and most of the Western Balkans. Earlier this year, in response to Russia's assault on Ukraine, Finland and Sweden submitted the joint application which will, pending ratification, bring the alliance's total membership to 30. When I look at Turkey, they now are fighting against those who fight with us, who fought with us, shoulder to shoulder against ISIS. And sometimes they work with ISIS proxies. This is an issue, and this is a strategic issue. NATO's 70th anniversary in 2019 was a muted sort of birthday. The president of one of its founders, Emmanuel Macron, scoffed that the alliance was undergoing brain death. The president of another, Donald Trump, appeared to find NATO, to the debatable extent that he understood it, a massive nuisance. Most member states were, and indeed continue to be, sluggish about raising defence spending to the suggested threshold of 2% of GDP. It is still not entirely clear what President Vladimir Putin of Russia was imagining when he embarked on his monstrous and preposterous invasion of Ukraine. But it was certainly not that he would end up serving not merely as a remarkably effective recruiting sergeant for NATO, but as a revivifying reminder of why the alliance was formed in the first place. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. We return now to my conversation with Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary-General of NATO, which took place a little over a week ago. In the second part of our conversation, I began by asking how Sweden and Finland will strengthen the alliance once their applications are ratified. Finland and Sweden will strengthen the alliance in many ways. They are strong democratic societies with strong armed military capabilities. Finland has a long border with with Russia and they have proven able really to maintain their defense over several decades also after the end of the Cold War and Sweden also have some very important capabilities. I think NATO membership for Finland and Sweden will be good for Finland and Sweden, it will be good for NATO and it will also prove that NATO's door is open. You have to remember that when President Putin went to war in February, he actually had some demands on Ukraine, but he also actually suggested NATO to sign what he called legally binding security treaties, where NATO should guarantee no further enlargement, no new members of NATO. So he wanted less NATO. He wanted us to partly have no new members and partly NATO to withdraw all its troops and forces from the eastern part of the alliance. He is getting exactly the opposite. We are increasing our military presence in the eastern part of the alliance to ensure that there is no room for miscalculation in Moscow about our readiness to protect all allies, to prevent any attack on allies, to preserve peace. And second, 
Finland and Sweden are becoming members. So President Putin wanted less NATO. He's getting the opposite. He's getting more NATO as a reaction to this brutal war of aggression against Ukraine. Well, on the subject of that open door policy, we, the foreign desk that is, attended the NATO summit in Madrid earlier this year. One of the other headlines of that event, as you know, obviously, was the inclusion of China in NATO's strategic concept for the first time. And guest leaders at that summit included the leaders of Japan, South Korea, Australia and New Zealand. Now, granted that NATO might have to do some work with its acronym, the whole North Atlantic thing would seem a little bit exclusionary, but is there any good reason why those four countries couldn't at some point apply to join NATO? NATO will remain an alliance of North America and Europe, and I think there are good reasons to maintain NATO as a regional alliance of the North Atlantic, also North America and Europe. But I also believe that this region faces more and more global challenges, cyber, terrorism, but also the security consequences of the rise of China. China is heavily modernizing their nuclear forces, building new nuclear silos, long-range nuclear-capable missiles. They are coercing neighbors. We see how they behave, for instance, in the South China Sea. And they don't share our values. We see how they're cracking down on democratic rights in Hong Kong and how they are threatening Taiwan. So all of this matters for NATO. It matters for our security. And therefore, we included for the first time, as I said, China in our strategic concept. We don't regard China as an adversary, but we need to take into account when we make our decisions, the security impact of the rise of China, including that they are now working more and more closely with Russia. And we had the statement by President Xi and President Putin in early February, just before the invasion, that the partnership with Russia and China was without limits. And China, for the first time, actually made an official statement calling on no further NATO enlargement, also saying that they don't want Finland and Sweden to become NATO members or any other country. And then on the partners, we will work more closely with them, with South Korea, with Japan, with Australia and New Zealand. I think that's in the benefit of NATO and for the benefit of our partners. But a membership is not the issue. Closer partnership is what we are going to do. It has been obviously an extraordinary transformative period for NATO. You don't have to go back all that long to recall when the United States had a president who appeared to regard the alliance as a nuisance, that France's president was describing the alliance as brain dead. Obviously, the events of the last eight months have, I guess, reminded everybody what NATO was for in the first place. But The first of those two particular threats to NATO hasn't necessarily gone away. Are you concerned about what a potential second Donald Trump presidency could mean for the alliance? I think we have to realise that even when President Trump was president of the United States, the United States increased their military presence in Europe. And I think also what we have learned during those four years is that we need strong transatlantic institutions that can weather different political storms. And I was actually also impressed by, or I'm still impressed by, the strong bipartisan support for NATO in the United States, in the US Congress. So, yes, there are different views about NATO. There will be different political leaders in NATO allied countries. We have 30 and soon 32 democratic nations with different history, different geography and different views. But what we have seen over decades is that we are always 
able to unite around our core tasks to protect and defend each other. This is obviously in the interest of Europe. Two world wars and the Cold War learned us how important it is that North America and Europe is together or stand together. But it is also more and more important for the United States, not least in the light of the rise of China. China will soon have the biggest economy in the world. They are investing in very advanced capabilities and the United States is concerned about this. United States has something no other major power has, and that is 29 friends and allies in NATO. And together we represent 50% of the world's GDP, 50% of the world's military might. So yes, there may be differences again, and there are differences, but it is in our security interest to stand together. We need a strong transatlantic NATO and institutions. And as, as long as that serves our interest, as it do, NATO will continue to prevail and be the strongest and most successful alliance in history. Just one final question for you personally. Your current second term as Secretary General was, of course, extended after Russia invaded Ukraine. Do you have any thoughts about a successor, if not a particular person, then maybe a particular sort of person? Is it time, for example, that the Secretary General of NATO was either a woman or perhaps somebody from the Baltics or Eastern Europe? I'm 100% focused on my task as Secretary General of NATO in extremely dangerous and challenging times for European security with an ongoing war in Europe, in Ukraine. And then I will leave it for others to speculate about what happens when I'm not Secretary General of NATO anymore. Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, thank you for joining us on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week with the first episode of our new series of historical episodes in which we consider great events of the past as The Foreign Desk might have covered them at the time. And look out, of course, for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle Magazine magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.